0: Will you please turn to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back, so if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. That is marked at 1 John chapter 3, so you don't have to fumble around to find it. And please keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of the Word of God. Some years ago, a pastor told an unusual story of a southern plantation owner who had left $50,000 to a former slave who had served him faithfully all of his life, and that was quite a sum of money back in the 19th century, perhaps equivalent to half a million dollars today. The lawyer for the estate notified the old man that he had this inheritance, and he told him the money had been deposited for him at the local bank. And a number of weeks went by, and the former slave never came to collect his inheritance. So finally, the banker called him in, told him again he had $50,000 that he was able to draw upon at any time. The old man replied, Sir, do you think I could have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Not having handled money most of his life, this former slave had no comprehension of the wealth available to him. And as a result, he was asking for 50 cents when he could easily have had much, much more. And I tell you that story because I'm convinced that many believers live in spiritual poverty because we do not understand the riches that we have available to us in the gospel. Now, why is that? There are a few reasons for this. One is that we don't have an adequate view of our sin and therefore we don't fully appreciate the magnitude of the work that Jesus has done for us. We've seen in just the last few weeks that our condition before God is so separate before we come desperate before we come to Christ that we were the Bible says dead in our sins. And because we were dead in our sins, it required that God do unilateral work on our dead and lifeless bodies so that we were given the ability to hear the call of the gospel message and then were given spiritual life. We saw two weeks ago that in the life and death of Jesus, God has done all that's necessary to give us a positive standing before him because the penalty of our sin has been paid by his death on the cross. And we're seen as perfect before God the Father because of Jesus' perfect life that's applied to us when we come to Him in faith. So Jesus died for us, and Jesus lived for us. And that's why we define the gospel the way we have been for these last several weeks, as is indicated at the top of the insert that you have in your program. I call your attention to that, and we also have on the screen, the gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we have a few more weeks left in this mini-series we started a few weeks ago on just the components of the gospel. Then we're going to start, after completion of this series, a passage-by-passage series in the book of First Peter. That's going to happen uh, the entire three hours that I'm preaching. So just I'm not preaching three hours, just testing to see if you're still awake. But when the wind blows really hard, until we get a unit on top of that, that thing rattles like there's a raccoon trying to get out or something like that. So it's just going to happen, all right? This is the first Sunday, though, that I think we've had wind like that Sunday morning. So I've heard it many times in this room when nobody's in here. All right, you all are here. The secret's out. That's why then, because we're in this mini-series, we have in that insert in your program this list of things that God's grace does for us in the gospel, delivering us from our condition of sin and then giving us the remedy for that condition. And you see there on the insert and also on the screen that God calls us and God gives us life in regeneration. We saw two weeks ago that God justifies us so he calls regenerates justifies us and therefore we're saved when we come to Christ in faith believing that we can do nothing for ourselves and accepting the fact that Jesus has done all for us that we could not and yet many Christians stop there and that's another reason then that we fail to see the riches of the gospel because we do not see it as the total to so- solution to our problem that the gospel indeed truly is. Many of us, now think about this, and if you do, I think you may admit that you have found yourself thinking this way, as have I. Many of us think of the gospel as something that we heard and we responded to in the past, but it really has no relevance for us after that. We have a truncated, incomplete view of the gospel, we see it as only a door that we walk through in order to become a Christian. And so on that view that many of us have held or perhaps still hold, the gospel is really only for unbelievers. And so once you become a Christian, you don't need it anymore except to share it with people who still are outside the door. But consider it this way. The gospel is like a diamond, which can be viewed from several angles in order to see its brilliance in a new and different light. And we live in this spiritual poverty despite the fact that the Bible speaks of the gospel in terms like Ephesians chapter 3, which says, I became a servant of this gospel to preach the boundless riches of Christ. So in the gospel you have the boundless, unsearchable riches of Christ. And so it's not only for eternal life, but for the abundant life. It's the fuel that fires the engine of the Christian life. Now, how is that then? Well, again, I call your attention to that chart that we have inserted in your program. And we've seen three of these six things that are facets of this diamond that is the gospel, calling and regeneration and justification. And now today we're going to see the fourth of those, adoption. And this chart shows the dimensions of the gospel. The first two of the six items listed there, calling and regeneration, give us the ability that we did not have to truly hear and receive the truth of the gospel message. And then having done that, there are benefits that we receive, and those benefits begin with the third item on that list, justification. We've been, as we say there, given a new record before God, a perfect record because Christ's life is counted to me now that and the other items that follow on that list that we're going to see today and in the next few weeks adoption and sanctification and glorification these all have practical significance for us today in the here and now in how we live this side of heaven so for example this new record that I have because I've been justified before God means this I no longer have to pretend that I'm better than I am. I no longer have to cover it because Jesus has covered it. I can be honest about my sin and my struggles and know that I still have Christ's righteousness credited to me despite my struggles and my sin. Think about it. How many Christians pretend week after week that we're better than we really are? And what an unnecessary burden of guilt that we carry because we hide rather than deal with our sin. And so week after week, we feel like a hypocrite as we put on our holy costume and we come to church. And one of the benefits of the fact that we are fully justified before God in the righteousness of Christ is that I no longer have to pretend I'm better than I am. That's why we've called this series then, The Gospel for Real Life because it has real here and now benefits and effects on how we live having been the unworthy and grateful recipients of the gospel today we're going to see another aspect that has real-world significance it's that fourth item on the chart that being adoption the gospel is good news in part because it means that those of us who were at one time hopeless in our condition and helpless to save ourselves who were indeed God's enemies because of our sin, are now, unbelievable as it is, are now part of God's family. 1 John chapter 3, in the New King James Version, I have it for you on the screen. I ask you to turn there. We'll look at what you turn to in the NIV in just a moment. But look on the screen for just a second. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Author Jerry Bridges says that his wife has an eye for beauty and she has an excitable personality and frequently as they're driving along, she'll say something like, Look at that! She might have seen a beautiful sunset or a bank of snowy clouds or a gorgeous fall tree. Now if she were using the King James manner of speech, which we have quoted for you on the screen, she might say, Behold, what a beautiful tree! But whether it's the King James or it's in contemporary English, in either case, what she's trying to do and what John is seeking to do is to get our attention. Now, normally the word behold means to see or to gaze upon, but when it's used in the Bible as a command, as here, it means to get someone's attention. Only here it's not saying look at that, but it's saying think about this. Think about this amazing thing. John is saying, stop and consider this astonishing fact that God loves us so much that we are called his children. And so that's why I've asked you to turn to 1 John 3, where in the NIV that most of you have, the translators have sought to capture the force of that statement with this wording. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God by combining the use of the word lavish and then an exclamation mark, the translators did their very best to have a stop and consider what John is saying. And what is it that he's saying? What is it that John is so thrilled about? It's to the amazing truth that believers are God's children. Bridges explains it well when he says, think of that. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're a child of God, a son or daughter of the Creator, Sustainer, and Ruler of the universe. Now it's true that sometimes our circumstances or even our behavior can obscure the fact that we are children of God, but it's important that we keep this truth constantly before us. Why? Why the big deal? Why is John so excited about a truth that we so often take for granted? First, it's because of who we once were. Let's remember that every sin we commit is an act of cosmic treason against the sovereign authority of God. And because of that, our condition was like that of a condemned rebel who has tried to assassinate the king and overthrow his government. And so here we sit on death row, condemned as rebels, awaiting our execution, but instead of the death we deserve, thanks be to God, we're made sons and daughters of the very king we've rebelled against. Instead of death, we get eternal life. Instead of wrath, we receive favor. Instead of eternal ruin, we're made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And all of this happened without our doing a single thing to earn the king's favor or any attempt on our part to make restitution for our rebellion. His Son has done it all for us. The gospel is indeed good news. Recall from last week and from several weeks ago, that we looked at Romans chapter 3 and we saw a 20-cent term there, justification, the third item in the list on your chart. And we saw then that justification is an act of God by which He forgives all our sins and He accepts us as righteous in His sight because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that's credited to us by God and received through faith. We saw two weeks ago then that justification is a legal declaration by God is acting in his capacity as the supreme judge. It's a legal act resulting in legal standing before God. Now hear this, that's something that is objective and external to us, but it makes a subjective and internal difference within us. The knowledge that we're fully pardoned and have a perfect record means, among other things, That when, not if we fail, we do not despair because all is not lost. Likewise, this fourth item in this list on your chart, adoption. Our adoption into the family of God is something that happens outside of us, but the reality affects inside of us. Just as justification means I have a new record and therefore I don't need to pretend, adoption means I have a new family and I don't need to perform. Justification means I have a new record, therefore I don't need to pretend. Adoption means I have a new family, and therefore I don't need to perform. Many Christians believe their standing with God depends on how well they perform. And if they do well, they have a relationship with God. If I don't do well, then I do not. But adoption means we're part of God's family, and we will never be disinherited and so when I fail to perform as I should and I sin I do not fear my position with God I am still and will always be his child consider this a few weeks ago we saw the second item in the list of six on your chart regeneration in which God gives us a new heart And we saw at that time that regeneration means to give life to impart spiritual life it's the same as what the Bible says with the term born again and so those who believe in Jesus now follow are both born into the family of God and adopted into the family of God born into it and also adopted into it now why both why both of those in the human family a child can't be both born of and adopted by the same parents. But with God we are both born of Him and adopted by Him. In the Book of First John, John uses the phrase born again seven born of God seven times, and each time it's used to refer to the evidences of the evidences that one has been indeed born into the family of God. And that's because just as human parents pass on characteristics to their children, those who are born of God begin to bear God's resemblance. We begin to see godly character qualities develop and mature. And as a result, God is willing to take us into his home, his family, as it were. Even though we were condemned rebels, we have been born again and no longer have the heart of a rebel. So we're born of God and also adopted by God. The Bible speaks of this adoption in a few places. Romans chapter 8 is one such place. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This has real life benefits. It means that we've been brought into a close personal relationship with God. Though we were rebels, as Jerry Bridges pointed out in what I read to you, on death row, awaiting our execution date, God pardoned us. He adopted us, brought us into His family. It also means that we have complete access to our Father. In both Romans 8 and Galatians 4, we're told to call God Abba Father. Just as mama or dada are the first words that might tumble out of a child's mouth the first elemental word that many children learn to speak. Just like that in the ancient Near East where Aramaic was the everyday language of Jews in the New Testament, Abba was a word roughly equivalent to Daddy. Jesus, when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, spoke Aramaic. And when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, he said, Abba. And when Jesus gave the model prayer for his disciples, the disciples' prayer, and he started it, our Father in heaven, it was our Abba in heaven. But there's more to this. Notice that both Romans 8 that we saw earlier and Galatians 4, which is still on the screen, refer to this adoption as adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. This phrase has been translated, adoption to sonship has been translated, receiving the full rights of sons. And so the reason they've worded it that way, adoption to sonship, or sometimes translated the full rights of sons, is because it's not talking about adoption of an infant or small child, as is most often the case in adoption that we're familiar with. But rather, in the Roman culture of the New Testament, Adoption referred to the practice of a wealthy but childless couple adopting a worthy young man to be their heir and carry on the family name. And so this means that although we come into the family of God as born-again babes that need to mature, we also, from minute one, have the full rights and privileges of full-grown sons and daughters. And so whether we are babes in Christ or mature believers, we all have the same privilege of addressing him as Abba, Father. You see something of this in the story of the prodigal son. I'm just going to read for you a couple of paragraphs from Jerry Bridges once again. A good sense of what it means to receive the full rights of sons can be seen in the restoration of the prodigal son upon his return from the far country. The father orders the servants to quickly bring the best robe and put it on him, to place a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In the custom of that day, the robe would have been a status symbol, the ring probably an indication of family authority, and the sandals a sign of sonship. He then orders the killing of the fattened calf, which would have been reserved for only the most special of occasions. And the contrast could not be greater. From a mere hireling, hungry, bedraggled, and feeding pigs, this young man is immediately restored to a position of dignity, honor, and full acceptance. He even becomes the guest of honor at a feast of celebration. And that's what the Bible tells us God does with us when we come to the Father on the merits of the person and work of God the Son. Like the prodigal, we have been welcomed by the Father out of slavery to sin and Satan, and we've been clothed with the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness and been given status as sons in his royal household. Now, what does it mean in everyday life, though, that God is my Father, that God is your Father, that I've been born into his family and that I've been adopted into his family? What does it mean? Well, we should be able to relate to what that means by looking at our relationship with our natural fathers. But the truth is, many have not had the kind of loving and intimate relationship with their earthly fathers that the Bible describes. And so for some, perhaps some of you, when you hear God is our Father, it doesn't give you the comfort that it ought. But please remember, dear friends, no matter what kind of relationship you had with your earthly father. God is not like sinful human fathers. He is not harsh, but the Bible says rather He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love, says the psalmist. Or in the words of Psalm number 147 we have for you on the screen. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and He calls them each by name. Now many of you know that The Psalms are poetry, Hebrew poetry, and one of the features of Hebrew poetry is that the lines are often parallel in some way. One line will make a statement and then the next line will either contrast with that or further explain it or just repeat it in other terms. And that's what's going on here. He heals the brokenhearted and and binds up their wounds. And then speaking of the same tenderhearted person, God our Father, He's the one who determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name notice the contrast the creator God who has all power and who could do whatever he chooses to do with us is the one who chooses to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds the Bible tells us a number of things that God the Father does for his children let me share a few of those with you one of them is that he provides for us Philippians chapter 4 My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Because I'm a child, a son or daughter of God, I can claim that promise. My Father, my God will meet all of my needs and he has insurmountable riches out of which to do that. He provides for us. He also protects us. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now many of you have heard me explain that before. We sometimes have that verse, you know, the hairs of our head are numbered, and we think God is just really smart. He's like the biggest computer you could ever think of. He just keeps track of all the hairs on everybody's head, and and he does. He is able to do that. But this passage is about more than that. It's not just that he knows the number and keeps a tally. It's only by the will of God that even the smallest details in your life occur, including a hair falling out of your head. Just like it's only the will of God that a sparrow can fall to the ground. And then Jesus goes on to say, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And so he provides for us and he protects us. He also encourages his children. Psalm number 10. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. It is our God the Father because we are His children who comforts us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. And He also, because He is our Father, He lovingly disciplines us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now I realize, friends, that there are times in all of our lives that it seems as though God is not doing any of these things. There are times in which it seems as though God may have forsaken us. But we need to remember as his children, no matter what the circumstances, we need to remember another promise quoted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 5 where the Bible says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so God does all of these marvelous things for us in the gospel. And adoption means this, back to your chart. Adoption means that God's grace delivers us from the position of sin and gives us a new family. God's grace in adopting us through the gospel renders us in a different position before God than we were in before. Outside of His family, we are now inside of His family and thus we have the new family in the household of God. Now, as we think of this relationship to God as our Heavenly Father, we need to always bear in mind this truth, dear friends, that the only way for you to be in the family of God is for you to be related to God through the person and work of Jesus. You're born into His family and you're adopted into His family. As we think of this relationship to God, our Heavenly Father, bear in mind we have it only through Jesus Christ. It's only because of our union with Christ that we are God's children and He, in turn, is our Father. This is why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, in Him, that is Christ, and through Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. After John makes this statement that I'd ask you to turn to in 1 John chapter 3, he adds something that I didn't highlight because I want to wait it, wait till the end. But 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. Exclamation point. And then he adds and that is what we are it's as if john is writing holy scripture and as he is hit with the unfathomable grace of god in adopting those of us who were rebels outside of his family into his family and john counts himself among them and as he's writing that he says see this great love that god has lavished on us that we should be called the children of god And I can't believe it. We really are that. In real life, right now, April 7, 2013, I am a son of God. And you are a son or daughter of God if you have come to God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if John is saying, it is really true, can you believe it? And I ask you, do you believe it? And do you live like you believe it? Do you live like an orphan or do you live like a child of God? One who with confidence goes from day to day, knowing that we will never be disinherited, knowing that therefore I do not have to perform for my position with God my Father. Do you each day realize you're a child of the heavenly King? Or do you live more like a slave who, in the illustration I read at the beginning, asked for 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? For those of you who have never come to God the Father through the Lord Jesus, you are here today by God's divine appointment to hear about the good news of the gospel. It is no accident that someone invited you here that somehow, some way, you were motivated to come to this place on this day. It is God's desire, and it is our earnest desire, that today, April 7, 2013, would be your spiritual day of birth. That you would be born into the family of God. Now, how does that happen? What do I do now? Realize that when the Bible talks about being dead in sin and unable to do anything about our condition, it's talking about you and me, all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And recognize what you have heard me say, that Jesus, God, came to earth as man and did what you could not do. He lived a perfect life, lived the life that you should have lived, and died the death that we deserve. He paid the penalty in full for our sin. And now His perfect life and His death on your behalf, both can be applied to you when you come to God believing that you're a sinner and Jesus is the Savior and your Lord. And if you believe He's your Lord, your Master, God, come to do this for you, then the third item on that list is you repent. And repent means to change your mind to go a different direction. In essence, it means, God, I now want to follow you with my life instead of going my own way. Repent. And then receive Jesus Christ into your life. Now, how does that happen? What do you have to do? Do you have to walk up front? Do you have to sign a card? Do you have to join a church? Do you have to be baptized? And the answer to all of those things is no. Here's what you have to do. You have to ask. You have to pray from your heart to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to apply what Jesus did to me. Forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you with my life. And April 7, 2013, will be your spiritual day of birth, born into God's family and adopted into his family. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for these precious promises and truths that you have given us in your word. They are not just words, but they are attached to the objective truth. That God has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that he has come on a mission to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And his mission has been accomplished. And as a result of him coming and relentlessly marching toward Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins, having lived a perfect life before you, because he has done that, when he hung on the cross, he was able to say these blessed words, It is finished. And now having accomplished all that is necessary, you bid us to come with the empty hands of faith. We bring nothing to our salvation, to our relationship with you, except our sin. And We offer our sin to the Lord Jesus, the sin bearer. I thank you for the profound, radical difference that that makes in our position before you and with you, and in the way we think about ourselves in relation to you. And I pray that your spirit is moving on the hearts of some right now who came to this place by your divine appointment to hear your good news and have it applied to them personally. I pray from their heart to you that they are asking you for what only you can give, salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be sure to honor and glorify you for what you do in and through us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.